Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I'm going to talk in just a minute about uh, reclaiming the word freedom and Trump's weekend meltdown. Jair Bolsonaro arrived in the United States. People were out with signs saying, wait a minute, you know, fascism arrives. We don't want it. He's going to be meeting with Donald Trump. He's the newly elected president of Brazil has been president for, I think, a little less than a year now. And one of his first acts of office was to curtail the rights of indigenous people and marginalized people. He is privatizing Brazil's public services, and he has opened the Amazon to exploitation by business. This is pretty bizarre. Donald Trump tweeting like crazy over the weekend. I'm of the opinion that Bill Barr, the guy who in 1992 was the attorney general and suggested to George Herbert Walker Bush that if he wanted to get out of having to comply with a subpoena to a federal grand jury and turn over his diaries, which would have shown that he was up to his eyeballs in Iran-Contra and he could have been prosecuted. If he wanted to get out of that, he just had to pardon all the people who could possibly testify against him, which included Elliot Abrams and Ollie North, there were five of them altogether, maybe six. And uh, George Bush took his advice. It was the Christmas Eve massacre of 1992. In fact, you can see the headlines on Christmas Day and the day after the 26th of December on the New York Times, the Washington Post. So he was brought back into the White House by Donald Trump to do this, right, to get rid of the problem, the Mueller problem. And I'm thinking, particularly after watching him and Mike Pence suck up to Trump last Thursday or Friday in the White House, I mean, literally just groveling, holding his hands together and, oh, Mr. President, your great leadership, it's such an honor, right? Since seeing Bill Barr do that, it's obvious that he's like, he's totally in the cult, right? So I believe that he has probably shown Trump what is, or told Trump, what's going to be in the Mueller report, because as AG, he's refused to recuse himself. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going to come out. And Trump is just like freaked out. And that freak out is what we saw this weekend. 
in all these tweets about all kinds of things that just, you know, attacking General Motors and this and that and the other thing. I was just bizarre. And meanwhile, about half of the public now is having doubts about Robert Mueller because of Trump and Fox and right wing hate radio constantly talking about Mueller and his 16 angry Democrats, even though most of his investigators are actually Republicans and so is Mueller. But I wanted to start off by talking about freedom. You know, on the Democratic side right now, we're having a debate about the word socialism. Actually, it's it's happening all across the spectrum in America. And frankly, I think we'd be better served if instead we were debating the word freedom. The local newspaper here, the Oregonian Sunday yesterday was reporting that in our little state, it's got 1.6 percent of the nation's population, our little state, there are 100 and, uh, 156,000 families who spend more than half of their income on rent and have no savings. These are the people who one car repair bill, one medical bill, loss of their job, and they are literally homeless. They're on the streets. 156,000 right on the edge. And the right-wingers would characterize that as freedom, right? That's liberty. I mean, it's kind of ironic that the nation founded on the world's greatest known genocide, I mean, the systematic state murder of tens of millions of Native Americans, and over three centuries of legalized slavery and a century and a half of oppression and exploitation of the descendants of those slaves, the irony is extraordinary presses us all to bring true freedom to America and liberty to all Americans. But what do those words mean? I mean, if you ask the Kochs and their buddies, like Freedom Works, right, who slap these words, freedom and liberty, on everything they do, you'd get a definition that basically says that you're free if you're free from taxes or from regulation. And truth be told, if you're morbidly rich, that makes a certain amount of sense, right? Particularly if your main goal is to get richer and richer and you don't care about the impact of that on society, on the environment, on working class people, or even on the ability of the government to function. On the other hand, if your definition of freedom and liberty is the one that has been embraced by democratic socialist countries like Canada, Europe, most of Europe, Japan, Australia, then you have a definition that's quite different. And it's very close to the one that Franklin Roosevelt embraced in 1944, in January of 44 when he gave his second Bill of Rights speech. And he proposed these amendments to the Constitution to put into the Constitution that you have a right to a job. That's freedom. That you have a right to be paid enough to live comfortably from that job. That's freedom. That you have the right to adequate food, clothing, and recreation. That that's freedom. That you have the right to start a business and run it without, quote, worrying about unfair competition and domination by monopolies, end quote. That you have the right, quote, of every family to a decent home. That you have the right to, quote, adequate medical care to achieve and enjoy good health. That the right to government-based protection from economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, and the right to a good education. That's what Franklin Roosevelt laid out. And he said, with all these rights, that's what guarantees the American notion of freedom. In fact, he said all these rights spell security, and he added, quote, America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part on how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens. For unless there's security here at home, there can't be lasting peace in the world. Now, all those other nations that I mentioned, in Japan, China, Germany, France, Spain, uh, Italy, the United Kingdom, I mean, you name it, right? The developed democracies 
they all believed in what Roosevelt said, and they adopted pretty much everything that he proposed for the United States, put it into their constitutions or put it into law. Now, in the United States, if we go back a little bit, you know, FDR was president from 33 to 44 or 45. I forget which year he died. And from 1920 to 1932, we had rule by Republicans, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and Hoover. And it was a disaster. I mean, Warren Harding campaigned on dropping the top tax rate from 91% down to 25%, which he did. He campaigned on privatizing government functions, which he did. He campaigned on reducing government regulation, which he did. And it led straight to the Republican Great Depression, which is what they called it up until after World War II. And during Roosevelt's presidency, you know, you had 30,000 Nazis assembling in Madison Square Garden. The Klan was exploding. The biggest of the right-wing groups was called the Liberty League, sort of like the Koch's Freedom Works. And so after he gave that speech about freedom, or in that speech about freedom, he went on to say, Franklin Roosevelt, the grave dangers of rightist reaction in this nation, if history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. So that's essentially what Roosevelt said. We either have these freedoms or we live under fascism. You know, we adopted a lot of what Roosevelt said. I mean, he said you're not free if you're old and deep in poverty, so we have Social Security. He said you're not free if you're hungry, so we have food stamps and SNAP. He said you're not free if you're homeless, so we have housing assistance and homeless shelters, although the Republican Party wants to gut all of these things. He said you're not free if you're sick and can't get medical care, so we have Medicaid, Medicare, and Obamacare, although the Republicans want to gut all those. Roosevelt said you're not free if you're working more than 40 hours a week and still can't meet basic expenses. So we have minimum wage laws and the right to unionize, although the GOP wants to gut both. He said, Franklin Roosevelt said, you're not free if you can't read, so we have free public schools, although the GOP is actively gutting them. He said, you're not free if you can't vote, so we've passed numerous laws to guarantee the right to vote, although the GOP is doing everything they can to keep tens of millions of Americans from voting. The billionaire class and their wholly owned Republican politicians keep telling us that freedom means the government doesn't do any of those things I just mentioned. Instead, as Ron Paul famously said in a Republican debate back in 2011, if you're broke and sick, you're free to die like a feral dog in the gutter. Freedom is homelessness in the minds of these billionaire Republicans. Poverty, lack of education, no access to health care, poor paying jobs, barriers to voting, all these things in their mind are signs of a free society, which, by the way, is why America's lowest life expectancy, highest maternal and childhood death rates, and lowest levels of education and lowest pay are all, almost all, there's the one or two exceptions, almost all in Republican-controlled states. Because that's what Republicans think means freedom. So instead of debating the meaning of socialism, frankly, I think the Democrats right now need to begin debating the meaning of the word freedom because the right has stolen that from us and we need to take it back. Stealing data from unsuspecting people on public Wi-Fi is one of the simplest ways for hackers to make money. When you leave your internet connection unencrypted, you might as well be writing your passwords and credit card numbers on a huge billboard for the rest of the world to see. That's why I use ExpressVPN. 
ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. Using ExpressVPN, I can safely surf even on public Wi-Fi without having my personal data stolen. For less than $7 a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have. ExpressVPN is rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash tom. That's expressvpn.com slash t-h-o-m for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash tom to learn more. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Just wanted to give you a heads up that Sue, who works on our newsletter, has just been doing an extraordinary job. We have an absolutely free newsletter. You can subscribe to it over at TomHartman.com. And every day she puts together what we call Sue's Daily Stack. It's literally a link to every story I have referenced on the air in the program. We're trying to get the word out. So many ways to communicate these messages. So just check it out at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you in Georgia, a state where Louise and I lived for over a decade. The chief deputy whip of the Georgia House Democrats, a business strategist, lawyer, five-term member of the Georgia House of Representatives, has introduced legislation that specifically calls for requiring men to obtain permission from their sexual partner before obtaining a prescription for Viagra, banning vasectomies, criminalizing doctors who perform them, classifying sex without a condom as aggravated assault, and requiring paternity tests at eight weeks of pregnancy and requiring expectant fathers to begin paying child support immediately, and a 24-hour waiting period for any men who wish to purchase porn or sex toys in the state of Georgia. Whether it's theater or not is something that we can debate, but I think this is brilliant. And on the line with us is State Representative Darshan Kedrick, five-term member of the Georgia House of Representatives, who is the author of this uh, piece of legislation. Uh, Representative Kedrick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. To what extent is this a statement on your part, and, and presumably the other women in the, in the Georgia House of Representatives, about about what happens when you try to regulate people's bodies versus, you know, a serious effort at legislation. This is a tongue-in-cheek package of legislation that I'm naming the Testicular Bill of Rights, and it really Mm -hmm. is to highlight the ridiculousness of HB 481, which is the heartbeat bill, or as I have renamed it, the women are too dumb to make decisions about their self bill. And it really is to point out the absurdity when we start talking about making choices for other people's body and putting the power in the opposite sex. And so, as you can see, it has really spurred discussion, which was the purpose of it. It has gotten people talking and thinking and asking questions. And even if you don't agree necessarily with the tactics or with the bills, it has gotten people talking about this bill, which is still pending in the state Senate right now, and it has people talking about the type of legislation that we want in our country and how far do we want it to go when it really starts to regulate the organs of other people. So it's gotten discussion really on fire. You are dancing fairly close to a few things that other countries have actually gone with. The reason why Sweden wanted to prosecute Julian Assange 
is because he had consensual sex with a woman who spent the night with him with a condom. And then in the middle of the night, she woke up to his try to have sex with her again. She did. She thought everything was good. She thought he was wearing a condom. And it turned out he wasn't. And so she charged him with assault because he wasn't wearing a condom. And that's one piece of your legislation. I mean, that's actually the law in Sweden. And the paternity testing at some point in pregnancy and the father being immediately responsible for child support, that's something that doesn't seem to me altogether irrational. It's a mix of feels that, you know, are totally outrageous, like having sex without the condom, to ideas that, interestingly enough, people are getting behind and supporting. But the overall theme, no matter how outrageous or how rational the bill may seem, is to get the conversation started or restarted and continuing the conversation about the absurdity in some of these bills that want to mess with women's reproductive rights. And I think I've accomplished that. Right. Right. There is also, you know, one of the other tongue in cheek things that has been done historically is going back to kind of the the really hardcore traditional Catholic and, and some evangelical Christians position that birth control is a violation of God's law because literally conception does not start at the moment of fertilization. It starts at the moment of the beginning of, of sex, uh, of the intention, and that that should be associated with, with reproduction exclusively. And therefore, there have been in the past legislators who have tried to say that any man who masturbates and spills his semen, which by the way, is specifically called out in the Bible as a crime as bad as being in the 600 and some odd things in Deuteronomy, or I think it's Leviticus, I guess it is, um, you know, where they say, oh, well, you, a man shall not lay with a man. They've used that for years to justify their homophobia and, and laws against homosexuality. You know, it also says you can't masturbate if you're a man. Well, I, I will tell you that there is actually a bill that has been proposed actually filed by a colleague of mine, Representative Park Cannon, who represents um, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. He actually filed a similar bill to draw on some of the terms that were in the heartbeat bill. So essentially what her bill does is anytime that a man screeches semen, they have to report it to the police. And that's the mirror of the provision in the heartbeat bill that says in order for you to obtain an abortion because of rape, you have to file a police report. Otherwise, right. even if you're raped, you cannot get an abortion unless you file that police report. So ironically that you would bring that up because that bill has already been filed by a colleague of mine. And let's be honest, there are many things that are um, chosen to be followed in the Bible. I'm a Christian myself, um, attend a church regularly and was raised in the church. And we see a lot of times that the Bible is taken out of contact and used when it's convenient for people to make their arguments. So I'm not surprised about that statement. Yeah, and and taken a little too literally. Though this issue, as we're getting into it, this is about as funny as as a heart attack. I mean, there are in, I believe, Honduras and El Salvador, I could be wrong, it's, but in two of the uh, Central American countries right now where we're getting refugees, Catholic countries, the anti-abortion folks have gotten so aggressive in these countries that there are women who are in prison for having had miscarriages, that if you have a miscarriage in one of those countries, you have to report it to the police, period, no matter what, or you can be charged with trying to induce an abortion. And in many cases, these women are in prison for having miscarriages where the police or somebody in their family said that they intentionally fell down that flight of stairs kind of thing. And, you know, criminalizing miscarriages. I mean, 
we think this is a joke. This is there's people in prison for this in our hemisphere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the points that was made was that because in HB 481, the heartbeat bill, fetuses are characterized as people. When you think about that from a criminal law standpoint, that means if somebody is committing a felony in the presence of a pregnant woman, even if she doesn't know she's pregnant, you could be charged with child endangerment because that fetus counts as a child, even though it's in utero. Or, for example, if um, somebody is involved in a vehicular homicide and one person is charged, if there is a pregnant woman, even if she doesn't know she's pregnant, that just up the number of counts for that vehicular homicide. I mean, we are talking, taking this to a whole new level when we start talking and counting fetuses in census data and counting fetuses on tax returns. What if if it's just a fender bender, but the person has a miscarriage the next day and says it's because I was in this car accident? Is that person who who ran into them in the parking lot going to be charged with murder? Exactly, exactly. So we're, when I tell you this is the slipperiest of slopes that we're going down, but apart from the fact that it is blatantly unconstitutional, which of course all the people who support this know it's unconstitutional because right. it's meant to be a test case for the Supreme Court. But aside from that, it just doesn't seem like it was well thought out. I mean, you can claim a fetus on your tax returns. Think about that. Wow. Wow, that's, that's amazing. You can claim a fetus on your tax returns. I mean, I have got to imagine that somebody in some department is thinking, how exactly are we going to prove that? Right. Or, or even if we could prove it, how much more resources and paperwork do we need to handle that? And what happens if it's a multiple babies in the stomach? And then what happens if all of them don't make it to birth? I mean, just just from a logical standpoint, it doesn't seem like it's well thought out. So this, this, there are multiple problems with this bill, so many that I, I can't even name. And that's the reason why I think the conversation needs to be had about these bills that are, are emotional and knee-jerk because we're, we're talking about lives and lives of women here in the state of Georgia that happens to have the number one rate of maternity death. But yet we want to pass a bill that's going to increase that number. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I wish you all the very best in, in getting this together and using this as a great vehicle to get the word out, uh, Representative Kendrick. Thanks so much for dropping by today and for talking with us and for doing the great work you're doing there in the Georgia legislature. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me a platform to continue the discussion. I appreciate it. It is absolutely my pleasure. I think that, you know, what you are doing is like, you know, bravery squared. It is just, it is such noble work. The Georgia State Representative Darshan Kendrick, a five-term member of the Georgia House of Representatives, representing the 93rd District of Georgia, and uh, Chief Deputy Whip of the Georgia House Democrats, formerly a business strategist and lawyer. You know, really solid person here who is uh, proposing something that I think should cause us all to just stop and say, hmm, interesting. Tom Hartman here with you, and what do we do? here with all this. Will Social Security be expanded? Donald Trump is proposing to cut Social Security in his budget. He's the guy who said every Republican on this stage is going to tell you that they're going to protect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. I'm the only one who actually will do it. They all want to cut it. Well, he wants to cut all three, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. On the line with us is Richard R.J. Eskow, senior fellow at the Campaign for America's Future, host of the Zero Hour on React Radio and now on Free Speech TV, ourfuture.org, and this is the zerohour.com or the websites. You can tweet him at R.J. Eskow. Richard, welcome back to the program. 
Great to be back, Tom. So give us the details on exactly what's going on with regard to Social Security. I know that there's there's activity in the House of Representatives. Of course, Donald Trump's budget. I don't know if any Republicans have gone on record saying that they support his plan to cut Social Security. I'd be surprised if they hadn't. So where are we at? What's actually going on? What are the details? Well, to me, Tom, it's one of the most interesting times for Social Security in many years in a way, because we're back to a very stark difference between the two parties in a way we haven't seen in a generation, in my opinion. We have Trump now joining with Republican orthodoxy, basically, by proposing major cuts to Social Security as well as to Medicaid and Medicare. Both Medicaid and Medicare contribute to the retirement security or disability security of people people who receive Social Security because Medicaid pays roughly 60-65% of all nursing home costs, for example. So it's very important in the lives of seniors and Medicare, of course, being critically important to seniors. So we have the typical, in addition to the budget cuts to Social Security itself, we have Trump falling in line with the standard GOP assault on retirement security and the security of disabled people in this country. But on the flip side, we have something we haven't seen in a generation, which is legitimate hearings in the House, uh, in this case, the Social Security Subcommittee, on expanding Social Security. We have a couple proposals to do that. The recent hearings were on Representative John Larson's proposal to expand Social Security benefits. Now, it's not the most left of the proposals out there, but it's got enormous support and it does increase benefits. It's got more than 200 co-sponsors, meaning Hmm. it's well on the way to passage before it even gets put up for a vote. And the hearings, to me, it was, as much as anything else, the crossing of a symbolic barrier, because as far as I know, it hasn't been since Social Security was expanded in several ways in the 1950s that we've had the House of Representatives actually holding serious hearings about expanding Social Security. And as you know, that was very much part of the political zeitgeist at the time. You had President Eisenhower, a Republican, boasting in 1956 in the Republican Party platform that Social Security benefits were extended or increased to 10 million people uh, while during his first term. So you had a consensus in support of expanding the program then, and I believe what we're going to see is a majority consensus again in favor of expanding Social Security. Yeah. Meanwhile, with regard to Medicare, and Medicare for all, this whole idea of expanding Medicare into a national health care system like Canada did back in the 1960s. Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders have a very specific bill, hers in the House, his in the Senate, that would do just that. And now we're starting to see some pushback from this. I, I noticed one of the Democratic presidential candidates, Beto O'Rourke, was specifically asked about that in a town hall meeting, and he basically just said he embraces the idea of everybody having access to high-quality health care, which, of course, is what Ronald Reagan ran for re-election on in 84. And then I think the next year he signed that bill that made it illegal for emergency rooms to turn people away if they couldn't pay. And then the Republicans ever since have said, well, everybody has access to health care in America. Um, you know, what's, what's going on here with this, Richard? You know, I, Tom, I listened with great interest to your first hour, your discussion about Beto and about Nancy Pelosi saying that values come first, which I think is true. But I think it, in the case of Medicare for all, it's 
support for it has almost become an assertion of values as well as support of a specific policy because it, you know words like access are words that some of us have come to view with a certain concern and and healthy skepticism i think because access to something you can't afford for example isn't really access at all. So I think it can debate the specifics of the Medicare for All bill put together by Representative Jayapal. I happen to think it's extremely good and extremely strong, but the underlying values behind it are that costs should not be a factor in getting the medical care you need, that if people need care, you know, I've lived through a generation of health policy where it was felt that you created co-pays and deductibles, partially so that employers could pay less to cover their employees, but partially because it was believed it was a kind of social engineering, as if people would just frivolously get care they don't need if those things weren't in place. I don't think uh, people believe that anymore, and I think people are now saying it's a shame when, as was the case with a young teacher recently, someone dies because they don't feel they can afford $160 co-payment to buy the uh, prescription medications they need to control a serious flu. So I think that's where we're at. Did I read this right? Is it actually true? Is this actually going on that the Trump administration and the Republicans are proposing that they begin taking the names and identities of people who are on disability and look at their Facebook pages to see if they can find evidence that they're not really disabled. I mean, everybody, no matter how much pain they're in, can pull off, you know, three seconds of a smile for a picture for Facebook. And everybody knows that the way that people portray themselves on Facebook is not really their real life and doesn't show their real challenges and difficulties and kind of put our best face forward, our best foot forward. Are we looking at a situation here where large chunks of people who are on disability might suddenly find themselves having to go to court to defend their disability claims because they posted some pictures on Facebook five years ago? Potentially, and at the same time that the Trump administration wants to cut the administrative budget so that there's nobody there to hear their case, they could have their benefits cut off. And it's another way, it's a very draconian 1984 way of demonizing the people who, these benefits are supposed to be here when we need them, and yet this is another way for Republicans, including Trump, to demonize people who do need them and make them seem like the other. And isn't it funny that the Republicans who all always complain about intrusive government, want to impose such a kind of police state activity on our private lives. Yeah, it goes beyond funny. I think it's obscene. R.J. Eskow, senior fellow with the Campaign for America's Future, host of the Zero Hour on WEAC Radio in D.C. and now on Free Speech TV, ourfuture.org, and thisisthezerohour.com are the websites. You can tweet him at R.J. Eskow, E-S-K-O-W. Richard, thanks for dropping by. Always a pleasure, Tom. Always a pleasure talking with you, too. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 and 110 or 6'4 and 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every 
every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWheels and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair. xchairtom.com. Michael in Princeton, Minnesota. Hey, Michael, thanks for watching Free Speech. What's up? What you were talking about, Mr. Escobe, Workman's Comp already uses Facebook to stop people from drawing. Really? Yeah. They did it in the state of Minnesota. Oh, my. A woman went on and posted something about her doing her garden, and she was on Workman's Comp, and the next thing you knew, they, they called her back to work and put her on light duty and took her off the Workman's Comp and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, so they're, yeah, they can do that. You know, we're talking about the horse race of the candidates for presidency, mm-hmm. but I do believe that Donald Trump is really doing us a big benefit. We brought out the progressives, you know, for the House. If we can do that for the Senate now and then get any Democratic president, I can't see that a Democratic president would veto anything that came through both houses of Congress. Yeah. And if they're progressive enough, they can push the president. Yeah, I agree. And so can the people. The old parade thing. This is why we need to get on this. I'm with you, Michael. Thank you. Well said. trying to figure out how we should all be responding to uh, another addition to the Democratic lineup. So we'll have Beto O'Rourke and Joe Biden, two very popular, high name recognition, quite charismatic, moderate Democratic politicians. Will they push Amy Klobuchar and other, quote, moderates out of the middle? Or how is this going to affect the whole thing? And, you know, what are your thoughts on this? John in Naperville, California, listening on Chicago's Progressive Talk. Hey, John, what's up? Beto is a great speaker. His inspirational tone and cadence is reminiscent of Barack Obama, in my opinion. Um, I supported Beto in his race against Ted Cruz, mm-hmm. but I want to speak to the uh, Guardian article that you mentioned by David Serrata. Serrata, yeah. In that article, it mentions that in Beto's six-year tenure in the House, there were 167 votes that he made against his own party, and these were not progressive protest votes. These were votes with Republicans, and just a couple examples here. He voted down Democratic legislation that prevented offshore drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico in 2014 and 2018. He voted for weakening the Volcker Rule. Which protects uh, us from big banks, yeah. Yes, exactly. It prevents big banks from using customer deposits for speculative trading. It looks like he also voted against financial privacy laws that would protect non-public personal information from being given to banks, third-party customers. I've read the article. I know David Sirota, and I'm familiar with the list. And the question in my mind is, did he vote that way when he was in the House because he was part of the New Democrat Coalition, which is a largely corporate money-fueled group? Or did he vote that way because those specific industries were funding him? And when he decided to run for Senate from Texas and not take any corporate money, was that a moment of a conversion or not? And I don't know the answer to that question, John. Do you? Um, unfortunately, I don't. But I, I am looking forward to possibly Beto Town Hall. Yeah. 
Yeah, because and, and I hope that, that we're going to learn a lot. Right, and I, and I hope that somebody actually asks him the question: Do you want to repudiate all or part of those votes that you took in support of the Republicans and in opposition to the Democrats back when you were in the House of Representatives? John, thanks. You are listening to the Tom Hartman program. I am at this point willing to cut everybody a whole lot of slack and hope for the best, and actually trust people if they say I've changed or I've woken up. Time will tell what kind of a candidate he's going to be. He was asked about the Green New Deal, and he went off on a on a riff about how terrible climate change is and how we already have climate change refugees and things like that, but didn't specifically endorse the Green New Deal. It's interesting to watch him try to kind of take this down the middle on the one hand. On the other hand, maybe it's very smart. Maybe it's smart to say, okay, you know, I'm going to be flexible on these things. We had this conversation with Congressman Mark Pocan, where he was sharing with us something that Nancy Pelosi had told him. Values are more important than issues. That issues come out of values. And so if we clearly express our values, for example, Healthcare should be a right. As a simple human right, every American should have full access to health care. That's a value. Now, how do we get there? Do we get there through Obamacare? Do we get there through Medicare for All? Do we get there through a multi-payer nonprofit system like Switzerland has? Do we get there through a multi-payer with government involved in public option program, sort of like Germany has? Do we get there through a state-owned and run system? essentially socialized medicine like the United Kingdom has? Do we get there through a single-payer system like France has? Do we get there the way Canada did, Medicare for all? There's a variety of ways to get there. Right now, the one that's really hot and that everybody's you know, saluting the flag on is Medicare for all, but if a candidate says, you know, I'm not certain that's the best way to get there, that's one of the ways to get there, but we're going to get there, are we ready to actually take their word for it? Because we've been burned before. You go back to Bill Clinton's New Covenant speech in 1992, he was talking about these same things. Barack Obama, hope and change, he was talking about these things. Well, he actually did something about health care. Something really huge and consequential, as a matter of fact. Had it not been for Joe Lieberman sabotaging the public option, frankly, I think right now, here, you know, six, eight years later, most Americans would probably be on Medicare and we'd be three quarters of the way into Medicare for all because, hey, it's cheaper and it's better coverage. And I can tell you, having been on Medicare for two and a half years, it is cheaper and better coverage. So how should we be viewing, you know, through what lens should we be viewing Beto O'Rourke's candidacy? Because really, he's talking values, but he's being a little squishy on policy. So are we twice burned, once shy, or are we, hey, you know, this is really the way to go? I'm still working this out in my own head, so I'm not saying that this is the way it is or the way it isn't. Bob in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Hey, Bob, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Hello, Tom. I think O'Rourke is going to ride the popular wave as long as he can and get what he can out of this. He's young. Jay Inslee, on the other hand, he will tell you more about specifically what he intends to do. He's got a lot of experience having worked on the Apollo project for some time with uh, uh, economic issues and 
and solutions. Well, he's been a governor uh, too, and and, and as a governor, he's got a lot of executive experience. I I have a lot of respect for Jay Inslee. I just don't think he has. Well, actually, I'm not going to say. You know, I'm I'm right at this moment. I'm going to stop saying anything that's a negative qualification about any Democrat because who knows? I mean, Jay Inslee might be the next president of the United States. Well, yeah, and, and my point, generally speaking here, Tom, and just quickly, uh, these are all politicians. They want to vote, they want to win, or they're testing the waters to see how they're future. Sure. I agree, Bob. And the good news on our side is that all of these people, all of these politicians, actually are running for president of the United States. Or at the worst, maybe vice president. Well, arguably in the case of Beto O'Rourke or Tulsi Gabbard or somebody like that. But I think that actually they're all running for president. Whereas what we saw in the Republican race was you had a bunch of people, you know, the Rick Santorums of the world, the Donald Trumps of the world, who literally were not running for president of the United States. They were running to increase their ability to earn a living after the election, after they'd lost the election. They were running as a way of building their brand. And we're not seeing that happen in the Democratic side. And thank God. Of course, Democrats tend not to tolerate hustlers like that. Robert in Portland, listening on X-Ray FM. Hey, Robert, what's up? Hey, Tom. Love your show. Local Thanks. listener. Thank you. Uh, you know, better work. I really feel, and I have felt this since, what, a couple years ago, that he would make a great vice president. Just, you know, he's got a young, fresh face, and he appeals to younger voters. But don't really know policies. I mean, he, he's kind of in the middle there, and I think he would be a great matchup with uh, Vice President for with Elizabeth Warren. Mm. The Warren ticket would be phenomenal, but I also feel that a uh, Bernie Sanders, Stacey Abrams ticket would be excellent as well. That would be an amazing ticket. Right now, I don't see a single Democratic candidate who I think could not beat Donald Trump. Yeah, and that's the bottom line. And it just makes me crazy. It makes me bang my, I want to bang my head against the wall when I turn on the TV and I see these asinine, for lack of a better word, a, a little more obscene one comes to mind, but I'm not going to use it, pundits going, oh, I don't know, Elizabeth Warren, too liberal, Bernie Sanders, too socialist, uh, maybe Amy Klobuchar is too liberal, I don't know, is she a centrist? You know, it's like, Come on, give me a break. We don't need Republicans to vote for our candidate in order for our candidate to become president of the United States. We need Democrats to show up in large numbers. It's really that simple. You got to energize and activate the base. Thanks a lot, Robert. Good to hear from you. Tom Harmon here with you. Hugh in Compton, California. Hey, Hugh, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, by the way, um, just FYI, he lost the Texas Senate race to Ted Cruz. So right now he's out of a job. Uh, what are your thoughts on his future, Hugh? Uh, I think that if progressive and Democrats really want to be effective and make change in this country, just like you stated, his name recognition is based on the fact that he lost or did not unseat one of the most unpopular senators in the Congress. And he's a young man, and if he would want to prove his political bona fides, maybe he could be in Texas and unseat someone like John Cornyn or one of those guys. Yeah, Cornyn's up for re-election in a year and a half. Right. And, and he's a young man, and if he has political bona fides, I believe that he could stay because... 
America has to realize that the president doesn't actually do it. He's going to need the cooperation of a Congress and a Senate to push through any policies. Yeah, I get that. And, And I think that this is probably the internal debate that Beto is having. I mean, he basically had to make a choice. Is he going to run for the Senate in Texas? Is he going to run for the president of the United States? And he made that choice. That door is closed now. You, as far as I know, okay. maybe I'm missing something about Texas politics, but you know, in any other state, that door would be closed. Hugh, thanks for the call. Joe in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on 1350 AM. Hey, Joe, what's up? Hey, good morning. My point regarding Beto and all politicians is that we need to campaign on both values and policies, and we need to give examples specifically with regards to health care. I don't want to hear that everyone should have access to health care anymore. We did that you know, Ronald Reagan's election. And then uh, the next year, I think 85, he signed legislation that gave everybody in America access to health care. He passed a law that said that emergency rooms can no longer turn you away because you can't afford to pay. And thus, emergency rooms became the new doctor's offices for poor people. And it created a crisis for the country. But the fact of the matter is that Reagan gave us universal access to health care. And Republicans to this day are saying, well, everybody in America has access to health care. What are you worried about? And so, right. yeah, I agree. We got to beware of BS language, of weasel words. I'm, I'm with you, Joe. Well, my, my point is, is that we've, we've been arguing and debating over health care since the Affordable Care Act has been implemented. That's 10 years of my life. OK, and the Republicans and we need to call them out, have nothing have have been doing nothing but trying to obstruct the successful. Oh, not just that. Trump just Act. proposed a budget that cuts almost a trillion dollars out of Medicare, yeah. Medicaid and Social Security. Yeah, exactly. And with regards to prescription drugs, again, I called before letting you know that I had to um, get a steroid inhaler, which was going to cost me 400 and some dollars because I did not meet my deductible. And I have excellent health care provided by the government. Right. We need to campaign not just on the macro level like Beto usually does. And if you ask me, I kind of think... And I'm tired of politicians kind of sidestepping the questions. Mm. Be a little bit more specific and talk specifically about the policies that are going, the, the, the obstructionists the Republicans have towards the policies that Obama implemented. Yeah. You know, I'm tired of people preaching to me. I want solutions, and that's yeah. what we should run on as a party. You know, up, up to this and, point in this conversation, Joe, I've largely not taken a position on any of this because I just wanted to hear what everybody had to say, and I still want to hear what everybody has to say. But I, I will say right now, I agree with you, and you I would like to see. Thank you. I, I, thank you. I would much rather have a politician come out and say, you know, my value is everybody has access to health care. I think the best way to get there is Medicare for all, or I think the best way to get there as a VA for all, basically what the UK has. But I may change my mind on how we get there once we get into making the sausage, but this is what I think is best. That's what I would like to hear, which is not what I heard this morning. But, you know, I'm not hearing that from most of the candidates, frankly. You're listening to Tom Hartman. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. 
And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one 888 gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one 888 gold That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one 888 gold Tanner in Madison, Wisconsin. Your thoughts, Tanner, on all this stuff here? If you had asked me three months ago whether Trump would be reelected, I would have said no. But the Democrats are just, you've got to run somebody in the middle. I know it seems counterintuitive. Oh, really? Are you a, do- are you a Republican a consultant, Tanner? Uh, I've been a Democrat my whole life. Um, you guys are a little wacky with some of the identity politics and everything, but... I, I don't know what to say. Like you, you, We you ran a lost. centrist candidate three years ago, and she got her butt kicked by Donald Trump in the it, Electoral it, College. I realized she yeah, got I would million. recommend not running somebody that uh, detestable and unlikable. But if you run somebody who's halfway reasonable, uh, Trump's base is eroding. There's a huge opportunity mm-hmm. for a working class kind of oriented. If a centrist, if Joe Biden, Beto O'Rourke, whatever, if, if any of those people become the nominee of the Democratic Party, if the Democrats in mass, in primaries and in caucuses decide that that who is who our candidate is, I believe that person can beat Trump. I believe that pretty much any Democrat right now could beat Trump. Uh, I I believe he's that vulnerable, and he's going to be more vulnerable as more evidence of his crimes come out. But I would like somebody who is going to turn out the Democratic base. My concern is that we're hearing all this advice from these idiots on cable TV, these pundits, at least half of whom are Republicans, and many of whom are big time, you know, in deep with the corporate part of the old corporate Democratic Party, who are saying that, you know, if you run somebody too far to the left, the American people won't show up. And No, what I believe is that, and I think that the last 15, 20 years with the Republican Party tells us this, is that if you can turn out your base, you don't need votes from the other side. And they keep saying, oh, but you need to get those Republicans, you know, and you need to get those independents who voted for both Obama and Trump. I don't think we need to. I think we need to turn out the Democratic base, period, full stop. Okay, back to you, Tanner. But I think what they're saying is places like Milwaukee and Detroit and Philadelphia didn't come out hard enough for Hillary because she's an old, rich, white lady. And so I think they're going to they're gonna say, yeah, Beto's fine, maybe for a VP, but we really need a Kamala Harris. And yeah, it could be. I don't, think, it's the, I don't think it was old, rich, white lady. I think it was just an incredibly badly run campaign. Her campaign, you know, it's uh, I'm with her, really? And not even going to Wisconsin, just taking it for granted. People know when they're being taken for granted. But uh, anyhow, my point is, I don't disagree with you that if a centrist is our nominee, we should all get behind that person and help them win. But I really believe that if you want to turn out the Democratic base, particularly the minority base, the young base, and the older base of Social Security folks, if you want to turn out that base, and and, that, and those are the folks who are going to be the most active, the people in the middle who are working three jobs, you know, people in their 30s and 40s and 50s, just desperately trying to hang on by their fingernails, it's going to be a lot harder to even get them to vote regardless of party. But if you yeah, want to turn out the base, get a real progressive. That's my opinion, Tanner. Well, 
Well, I think so. I, I think, but but look, what happened in the House was those districts, those Democrats, the people that voted for Obama and then voted for Trump and then went back to the Democrats because they had an economic message. But nobody yeah. wants to hear that. No, so I, I think it's a big, big mistake if you go all in with the culture war stuff. But, but the, progress, the progressive message argument. is an economic message. So, Well, why uh, did the AFL-CIO come out against the Green New Deal then? I remember when liberals used to care about unrestricted immigration, and now with the fact that Cesar Chavez is rolling in his there's, there is There is no Democrat in the United States who's in favor of unrestricted immigration. There's no Democrat in the United States in a holding political office that I know of who is saying we should have open borders. None. And, and I don't know like that the AFL-CIO is opposed to the Green New Deal. I've not seen any kind of policy position from them on that. Denise in Calumet, Michigan. Hey, Denise, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Thank the you. thing about Beto O'Rourke isn't anything specifically about Beto O'Rourke. Trump is never going to get his real wall, but he has a Republican wall right now. And we need somebody strong enough to clean up Trump's mess, somebody who has the courage and has been out there with the courage to stand up to that Republican wall of people who have given up on their oath to the Constitution and have followed Trump loyally in all his lies. So I'm going for Bernie. I'll go for anybody elected to the Democratic primary, but... I really believe Bernie has the guts, or Elizabeth has the guts, yeah. to stand up to that Republican wall. I have said I'm not endorsing, but that said, the two clear progressive frontrunners in my mind are Bernie and Elizabeth Warren. And then there's some other great candidates, and I share your sentiment. Denise, thank you very much for the call. Nora in Sandy, Oregon. Hey, Nora, what's up? I think passing a purity test at this point is a problem. We don't want turn any candidates away, but we do want to look at their history, and if they say they've changed, how do we believe them is the real problem. You know, Tulsi Gabbard says she's changed her opinion, Beto may say he's changed, or... Kamala Harris on the aggressive way she was prosecuting small crimes. We trust them, because... You know, like the whole wishy-washy, oh, we're not going to go for Medicare for all. There are lots of other ways. Well, that could be true. There are lots of ways. We don't want to just nail down one concept. No one's got it together yet about that. But to just say that and pay lip service, it seems like everybody has Bernie's platform now, right, from 2016. It's like, oh, bandwagon? So which ones are real? Who can we trust? Now, Trump had Bernie's platform, and he won with it. You're right. People believed him. He was lying. So really, the key is, who's not lying? And I'm betting on the old guy myself, because I think he's not a liar. And that's what I can trust. The old guy being Bernie, not, not, not Joe, I'm assuming? No, Joe's got a terrible history. Okay. He's so, a terrible history. I loved Joe before I became awake. I always say, I love Joe. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, the pine and the... And the, I can't even watch the, you know, we believe you, Anita. I was there. I know the Coke can. We believe you. I had no idea Biden had to do with that. I was in the dark. I'm willing to cut a Democratic politician a lot of slack, in part because I trust the Democratic electorate to push people in the right direction. But, but that well, said, I also would love to hear them say the right things. Nora, i got to move along, but thank you for the call. Joy in Thompsonville, Illinois. Hey, Joy, what's up? Hello, Tom. I've called here before, and I give money, and I watch you every day. And I seem to get always a hesitancy about your feelings about Bernie. 
and I love Bernie, and I trust him. And who was the first person nationwide in 2016 that said the number one concern was climate change, and they laughed at him? All right, and that was and Bernie in the, in the debate. the number one yeah. concern. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think Bernie's a great candidate. I think he'd make a great president. I, and I Beto is, we do not have the time to elect a moderate this time. No moderate, no corporate. Kamala's a corporate. Um, so many of them take corporate money, and if they took it in the past, they'll take it again. Yeah. We just don't have time because of climate change. I think I think that you make a very good point, Joy. And uh, you know, but interestingly, climate change was the thing that Beto kicked off with. So if he's willing to repudiate his fossil fuel past to the extent that there is one, and again, I'm no Beto expert. I'd love to know more about this. Than, uh, yes, than... he's a mystery right now, and I know the real stuff. And if you're going to rely on the people. We love Bernie, yeah. and that's how it is. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Joy, thank you for the call. Marta in Big Bear Lake, what's up? I agree with Jim Hightower. There's nothing in the middle of the road but dead armadillos. And yellow stripes. Um, <clears throat> pardon me? It was there's nothing, the, the only thing in the middle of the road are dead armadillos and yellow stripes. Exactly. Uh, Medicare buy-in is, is horrible. Uh, just look at Medicare for seniors. Uh, they're, it's putting them in poverty. They can't afford the, you know, the premiums and their medications. As uh, Going back to college myself, I see students having to work for low wages. Rents are spiraling. Tuitions are spiraling. Uh, they can't afford the Obamacare, and they maybe make too much for Medical and so your point, Marta, because uh, we're going to hit the break here. Okay, unit champion. Spot on. I agree, Marta. Thank you for the call. Tom Harbin here with you, and pick up your thoughts here, Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's on your mind? Uh, hello, Tom. I want to talk about Beto, and there was a specific question that I was interested in, but I didn't really quite catch it about Beto. It was about the issue of UBI, and I didn't quite catch what he said about the universal basic income. Did you? He punted. He went off on a, as I recall, on a conversation about how our economy is fundamentally unfair to people. Yeah, he didn't say yes, he didn't say no. And that was the case with most of these issues where people were asking specifics. I think we should definitely keep an eye on that issue because that issue, I think, is going to change radically for this election because we're seeing more and more that people are increasingly realizing that working and the idea of automation, eventually we're going to just have to start working less and less. And we should start beginning paid a mm -hmm. income that will cover us and everybody in this country because, it, it, I mean, there's literally nothing else we can do. I mean, the job, yeah. I mean, even if they, quote, brought the jobs back overseas, you realize that the capitalists would turn our countries into third world places. They would literally. Well, it's not so much that, Jared. It's that it's that a factory in Detroit that used to have 30,000 people making cars is now in China 
but instead of 30,000 Chinese making those cars, it's heavily automated, and it's got maybe 6,000 Chinese making cars. And if we brought it back to Detroit, and it was rebuilt from scratch with the latest generation robots, because the Chinese robots are probably a decade old, it might only be 500 people making cars. I mean, Tesla is showing us this. So bringing the jobs home is great. Bringing the manufacturing home is great. And the reason for that is that that brings home the profits. We built modern China through these insane, stupid trade policies that started with Richard Nixon, went on steroids with Reagan, and then were amplified by Clinton. Um, we built, literally built modern China. I, I lived there the month of November 1988 and, uh, or 86, I guess it was. There was literally not a single skyscraper in the city. No cars on the streets. It was just an ocean of black bicycles. It was a completely different place. We transformed that by putting all our jobs there and stupidly going along with their trade policy. All that's true. And bringing those jobs home will bring back a lot of that wealth to the United States, but it's not necessarily going to bring back the jobs. So I agree with you. The UBI issue is going to be one of the more important issues that we've got to talk about. Frankly, I think one of the ways to fund it is to have a tax on technology that replaces humans and have basically robots and artificial intelligence start paying Social Security tax and Medicare tax because hey, it's replacing humans. As far as I know, if you're going to criticize Beto for not endorsing it, I think Andrew Yang is the only Democratic presidential candidate, and I'm not even sure he's going to make it into the debates because you got to get 65,000 people, you know, uh, who's I, endorsed I heard, it. I heard that he did get into the debates, which is really good news because I am increasingly turning more to Andrew Yang because it seems like he's the only one who seems to at least be bringing this issue up. So even if yeah. he doesn't win the primary, we at least start talking about this issue. Why is it we don't just work, you know, 15 hours a week? Why are we working 40 hours a week? Why are we being wage slaves to this system when we could be spending more time doing more productive things with our life? Yeah, there's, what, there's a lot of what, stuff that are just kind of leftover anachronisms. You know, summer vacation, the way that we do it here in North America, is basically a vestige of harvest season. And uh, we're no longer an agricultural economy in Europe. Everybody just takes the entire month of August off, and there's a whole different economy around that, actually. It's very, very well organized, and it's very interesting to live there and watch it happen. But we don't do that that way here in the United States. So for a 40-hour work week and all this stuff that are vestiges of the Industrial Revolution, of how much time you know, it takes somebody working in a factory, what's the maximum amount of time that you can have somebody put bolts on screws before they fall down from exhaustion or before you've exceeded what's fair for them? Well, you know, as AI and robots make productivity increased, that's no longer necessary. So, Jared, you raised some really interesting things, and you're right, Andrew Yang is talking about these things. And there are some candidates like Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson, who a lot of people are actually giving $10 gifts to, not because they necessarily think that person is, even has a chance of becoming president, although they may, but mostly because at the very get-go, they want them to be on that debate stage. They want their voices to be heard. Marianne's position on this kind of spiritual renewal and the role of women in the economy and in politics. Tulsi Gabbard's position on the war. You know, some people are tossing money at her because you've got to have 65,000 small donors in order to get on that debate stage. So we'll see how it shakes out. I'm really fascinated by the whole thing. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.